you have a Bible, open it uh, with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to break into about halfway through chapter 1 and work our way into the middle of chapter 2 this morning. As we talk about the Incarnation, we gravitate towards important events in our lives, things which to one degree or another impact us, impact our lives. Uh, Reaching back, I'm sure that there are events in our lives that uh, were noteworthy. I was in Northern California last week, and uh, I, I was visiting with my son, and he had some things that I had collected years ago, well, now decades ago, uh, that uh, were important events. And I brought them this morning. I actually, this is the full Seattle Times newspaper from May 19th, 1980. St. Helens erupts, nine dead. Well, there were 57 people that died in that eruption, but this was so early on, I mean, it was hours after the event. And I thought, you know, I want to buy a paper. I've never opened the paper. It's still got all the original ads and everything else. I thought, I want to have the whole newspaper uh, just for something to give to my kids someday. And he gave it back to me. But <laughs> anyway, there's one important event. If you're living in the Northwest, you remember it. If you're living anywhere, you probably remember it. It was a significant deal. Here's another one. I bought the whole paper. Notice it says extra on the top. Uh, shuttle explodes. Crew, including teacher, feared dead. Obviously, we know what happened. Seven people died in that. Uh, but this was so early on, it was the same day. This is an extra edition where they it was hot off the press. And I thought, I'm going to go down to the, the paper box, and I'm going to buy one, and I'm going to just put it away. And here I am, what, <laughs> how many years later? Uh, 1986. So the point is, important events. As we look this morning at the Incarnation, we're looking at the most important event in all of human history, truly. That time, so what does the Incarnation mean? It's that moment when God, the author of life, clothed himself with a human body, fully God, fully human, and came to this earth to rescue us. Last week, uh, if you were here, Thomas, um, he asked the question, why Mary? Uh, Why would God use this teenage girl from an obscure town that was, and she was virtually unknown to anybody except for those in her family and her community? Why would he use her to bring forth Messiah? Today, as we move through the text here in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, one of the things I want to look at is why Joseph? Why did God raise this man up to be the earthly father, the adopted father of Jesus? So as we look at this in the Gospels, there are two Gospel accounts that relate the birth of Christ. There's Matthew, which we're in this morning, and then there's Luke. Luke's gospel primarily focuses and it speaks of the birth of Jesus from the vantage point or from the, the, the point of view of Mary, Mary's point of view in Luke's. Matthew here, on the other hand, focuses on telling the story from Joseph's perspective. And I want to look at that more as we go along this morning, along with some other things. So as we get into this, let's begin with Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which was a period of engagement in which it was a Jewish tradition and it was considered binding. It was what they entered into a year or two before the actual marriage. And they were off the market. They weren't eligible for anyone else, but they had not yet consummated the marriage. So it's like the first stage of marriage, and they're betrothed. In order, it was so seriously taken by the Jews in that day that in order to get out of it, you had to get a divorce. So in that sense, they were already joined. They were already married. They're legally bound in this first stage of marriage, but they haven't yet been together. There, there was no physical intimacy at this point. And at that point, 
we see Mary is now pregnant. She's with child. So in our studies in 1 Thessalonians, which we've been in, hopefully the Lord willing, wrap that up next Sunday uh, and go into 2 Thess at that point. But we've looked at the betrothal, and that was the period of time when the groom had promised to take his bride to be his wife. We've looked at the wedding language in the New Testament being beautiful in the way that Jesus says, he says, I've got to prepare a place for you, and when I come, I will take you unto myself. And that's what Joseph would be doing at this stage. He would be adding an addition unto his father's house. And so they would be excited. They would be anticipating this wedding. And I mean, these were giant events in these people's lives. These people, the Jews, I'm telling you, they liked to party, all right? They didn't just have like an afternoon thing and a reception. No, they went for a whole week. And when there was a wedding celebration, it was a week-long festivity. It was a week-long deal. Whenever the Jews had, and they attended any of the national feasts in Jerusalem, it was a whole week. They would have the time traveling to get there, then a whole week there, and then the time traveling to get back, regardless of wherever they lived. So these people liked to celebrate. Into that, into that setting, uh, Mary comes up pregnant. Now, it's also in this setting in Luke chapter 1 that, that we're told that the angel Gabriel visited Mary, telling her she was highly favored among women and that she would conceive in her womb and bring forth a, su- a son and that she would call him, that his name would be Jesus. At that point, Mary asked Gabriel, how can this be since I, don't, I have not known a man? I, I, I don't understand. And, and again, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So Mary has gotten this instruction from the angel that she is indeed going to have a child. She has never known a man, and that this would be a miraculous birth. So when the angel was with her, he said, look, your your cousin Elizabeth, she lives to the south, down in the Judean hills somewhere, and, and that she is with child also, and she's in her sixth month of pregnancy Obviously, Elizabeth was the one that had John the Baptist. And so Mary travels there to see her, and Elizabeth's reaction was immediate. Uh, the, the minute that she sees Mary, we were told that the baby in her womb leaped in, for joy, and, and, and she immediately addresses Mary. She says, look, you are the mother of my Lord. So we know that Elizabeth's on board, right? Now, at that time, Elizabeth, she was married to a guy, a priest by the name of Zacharias. And at that point, if you know the story, he was pretty quiet. <laughs> he didn't have a lot to say. Things hadn't gone that well with him when he had the angelic visitation. Uh, he, he didn't believe, he doubted what the angel was telling him. And the angel said, okay, well, I guess we're going to show you here. And, and he was rendered speechless, literally, for months to come. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I always laugh when I think about Zacharias because, you know, the guy's, he's a minister. He's, he's there ministering at the temple and, and then he comes up speechless. And I thought, yeah, I, I would get that. And probably not a bad thing in some people's minds that he wasn't able to talk for a few months. So just saying there, but so Mary was likely with Elizabeth and Zacharias for several months. And we're not sure when Joseph came to the understanding that she was going to have a baby. Uh, we're not told. Uh, was it when he found out that she was pregnant? Uh, when she was at, when he went to travel to Elizabeth's? Uh, or did she tell him before she left? I don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, we don't know the details. But we do know that when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, uh, being a just man, we're told that in the next verse here, uh, I believe that Joseph is in pain. I believe that he's feeling at least bewildered, very possibly feeling betrayed by this woman that he had come to love. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So here we see Joseph, he's an honorable guy, he has this desire to put her away secretly because he doesn't want to make her a public spectacle. Why? Because she would probably have been stoned. 
the, the process in those days is he would take her to the city gates. That's where they adjudicated. That's where they had court. And if he presented her to them as an adulteress or as a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock and that they were betrothed, that would be it for her. She probably would have been stoned. At the very least, she would have been mocked. And he didn't want to have any of that. There would have been a scandal. So even in his brokenness, he was minded to put her away secretly. It tells us, really, that there's a good chance that he was wrestling with believing her story. Think about it. Mary would have had a little bit of a tough time trying to convince people, hey, I'm pregnant, but God did it. I'm a virgin. And I mean, think how preposterous that sounds to you and I. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, I'm going to have a baby. Yeah, you got the lump on the belly and the whole thing. But but no, I, I've never known a man. Uh, this is something that God did. We would probably be scratching our heads at the very least. Interesting, this followed Jesus into his public ministry decades later. Uh, in John chapter 8, verse 41, the religious leaders in Jesus' day very clearly implied that he was born of fornication. Interesting. So, as far as Joseph goes, I believe he was terribly conflicted. I believe that he didn't know what to do. He's wrestling with these things in his own mind, in his heart. Verse 20 backs that up. Verse 20, but <clears throat> while he thought about these things, yeah, he's thinking about it. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Mary has been telling you is correct. Verse 21, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, I believe that when it comes to Joseph, that the Father in heaven had chosen him because he's, he is the kind of man who would pri provide a covering for Mary rather than to expose her. He's an honorable guy. And I, I see the heart of God in this because the God we serve is the kind of God who would rather cover the sin of the people he loves rather than to expose them. He would rather forgive us than to see us pay the penalty for that sin. So as we look at Joseph here, I, I, it begs the question in my mind anyway, what kind of relationship would he have had with God during this time? Not just before the birth, but when Jesus is growing up. What kind of a relationship? What would his prayer life look like? I mean, there's nothing in the Bible. There's very little about that as far as Joseph is concerned. But we know that he's the adopted earthly father of Jesus. And he's in communion with the heavenly father of Jesus. You know, perhaps as he's praying, he's saying, Lord, this is your son, the son of God. He, he's become my son. I, I've grown to love him. Uh, please help his mother and I to raise him. What would it be like raising the Messiah? You know that this is the sent one. Again, the Bible is quiet on those, it's silent on those things, but we can only imagine the relationship Joseph had with the father. One thing that we do know is it's the only relationship of that kind that would ever be in all of human history. Here, the earthly father relating to the heavenly father of this boy, of this child. Amazing to think about. Verse 22, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So here Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and he's talking about the virgin there in Isaiah, and the Hebrew word for virgin there is Alma. Uh, and, and it's where we get the, I don't know if you've ever heard the term alma mater. If somebody's been to college, you say, well, what's your alma mater? That, it's where this word comes from. It literally means virgin mother. So that word alma meant virgin back in those days. And this is long, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. Now, the Septuagint, which was written 200 years prior to these events, translated the Hebrew into Greek, and they had no problem translating Alma to the Greek word Parthenos. What does Parthenos mean? It means virgin. There are people that would cast aspersions about whether or not 
Jesus was born of a virgin, of a woman who had not, not ever known a man. Uh, and it, I have no problem believing that. We'll talk about the supernatural here in a few minutes and why it's not a stretch. If you're a person, if you're, if you're connected to Jesus, you understand that supernatural events are part of what he does. It's just part of who he is. He also says the virgin. There's a definite article in front of this. And what he's talking about is a specific one. Not some virgin, but the virgin will be with child, shall bring forth a son and call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now, in this, we also see a beautiful picture of the person and the work of Christ here. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at, there are two pillars of understanding that you need to have straight in your mind, because if you don't, You've got a different Jesus. You talk about the person of Jesus, who he is, son of man, son of God, fully man, fully God. And you talk about what he came to accomplish. What's the work that he came to do? The work of redemption, the work of rescuing us, as I mentioned. So the word Jesus, the the name, it literally means God is salvation. That's what he does. He came to save. Emmanuel means God with us. That's who he is, God in human flesh. That's the incarnation. Verse 24, he says, Then Joseph, then being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and and took to him his wife. And he didn't know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So uh, think about the relief that would have been in Joseph's heart as he awoke from this dream and recalled the angel's words. I mean, He had been stressed out. You would have to know that, I mean, there would at least have been a large amount of doubt in his mind. Is this really as she says? The angel has said, don't be afraid to take her for your wife. And now he's got to be relieved. So no longer concerned with the woman that he loved had somehow been unfaithful. Now his concerns shift because there would be much work that would need to be done in preparing for the birth of this child. Now, as we go along, I'm going to paraphrase here. You know the story of the birth of Jesus, how Caesar Augustus had ordered a census, and as a result, Joseph and Mary would have to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to register so that they could be taxed. Essentially, the Roman Empire required it. So as they get there, they find out the inn. is There's no room at the inn. Now, you've got to understand something about the way that those things worked in those days. It's like if you go to a motel today, they've got a parking lot outside. Well, they didn't have a parking lot there. They used either a rocky outcropping or a cordoned off area with stables because if people traveled, they had to have a place to put their animals. And you got to remember, it's census time. There are huge amounts of people going to their birth cities to be able to register for this thing. And so it's crowded. And I believe, again, it doesn't tell us, but it makes sense that in typical Middle Eastern hospitality, then when the innkeeper said, we don't have any room in here, then he probably said, but we have room out there, out in the stables, out in, under the, the, and when I was in Israel, uh, we visited, there are a number of places where the rock just kind of shoves up out of the ground and it forms this perfect shelter that uh, shepherds would take their sheep and, and shelter them from the, the, the weather and where they would have opportunity to be able to park their animals. So regardless there's no room for them. They end up outside and end up, that's where the baby would be born, is out in this manger somewhere uh, in the town of Bethlehem. Meanwhile, out in the fields near the city, somewhere out there, uh, there were a bunch of shepherds out there doing what they do, and it's nighttime. Remember, there's no ambient light. I mean, if I go outside here, <laughs> the lights from Portland kind of light it up. I mean, there's a lot of ambient light here. I used to live in southern Oregon up in a little town called Eagle Point, and I I would go lay out with my kids in the back of our pickup truck at night, and it was so dark that we would watch satellites just whipping across the sky, I mean, one after the other. And I never saw, I grew up outside of Los Angeles, I never saw anything like that. So there's no ambient light. These guys are in the dark. And suddenly, (laughs) suddenly, this angel, the, an angel of the Lord shows up. He just materializes and he begins to talk to these guys. The glory, we're told the glory of the Lord is surrounding him. So he's shining. I mean, what a scene. 
their eyes are trying to adjust to the light and it's like, what is going on? And they're trying to figure out what this guy is doing here. And, you know, and then and it's, it, this glow, the, the, the glory of God is, is there. And, and, and what a scene. The angel, first of all, tells them not to fear. Uh, and if you look at God's word, you see that over and over and over again, when something supernatural happens, What's the first thing that comes? It's a reassurance. Don't fear. I think about Revelation chapter 1 where John is out there. You know, he's been on the island of Patmos. He gets taken up in this vision and he sees Jesus in his glorified state and, and he's shining and, you know, kind of a similar description to here. And, and what is the first thing that Jesus says? Fear not. Don't be afraid, John. He comes over, puts his hand on his shoulder, which I think is just a, a powerful scene. I'd love to just go there and spend some time in that. But the point is, these guys are out in the field. The angel comes to them. The first thing he says, essentially, is calm down. Don't be afraid. So he goes on to tell them about the birth of this child. And while he's talking with them, this angel that's shining, suddenly the whole place lights up with a myriad of angels, the angelic hosts surrounding him, I can only imagine, and we can only imagine what that would have been like to where, I mean, these guys not only lit up by this angel, I mean, the whole place is lit up. And they're seeing glory to God in the highest and peace uh, and goodwill towards men, the whole thing. Uh, Again, remarkable, remarkable scene. And these guys, they were just out tending sheep. They weren't going to be tending sheep for long because as quickly as all of this started... It ended, and it was dark again. And these guys, they weren't interested in tending their sheep. At that point, they wanted to get to town. They wanted to figure out what was going on with this whole thing. And so they head into town, and they find Joseph and Mary and the baby just the way the angel had told them. And there's the baby there lying in the manger and all of that. So in that, they spend some time there, and then they go out, And they're telling anybody that will listen about this miraculous event, this whole night that had taken place, the angel, the the host, the heavenly host, this couple, their baby, and he's a king. And and, they've actually, they essentially become the first evangelists because they start spreading the the news. Back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now that's a headline. That yeah, This stuff I've got on these papers is nothing compared to that. That would have been a great headline. Now Jennifer made a, a, a deal, uh, uh, which I, I thought was great. She sent it to me the other day. and Yeah, let's use that. I love how she's got uh, underneath the Jerusalem Times, www.jerusalemtimes.scroll. <laughs> it's great. Anyway, thank you, Jennifer. That that was a, just a, a great addition here because I told her I was going to use headlines from the paper. So that would have been a headline. I mean, it, had they had papers back then, that would have been something to talk about. It would have been some great news. Now, I want to talk about the wise men for a minute. The Greek word for wise men here in verse 1 is magi. That's where we get it. And it literally translates magi. Now, most scholars believe that they're either from Babylon or from Persia. They came from the east. So realize, too, that about two years have gone by now uh, between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. By this time, Joseph and Mary, still in Bethlehem, would be living in a rented house. They were no longer in the shelter. They weren't, they weren't out in the, in the stables at this point. And the other thing about this too is there's nothing in the text that indicates that there were three wise men. Yeah, I laughingly call them the three wise guys. Uh, they, there were three. Now, where we get that is they, they presented three gifts. All right? Gold and frankincense and myrrh, and we'll get to that in a minute. But That's where we come up with that. But there was probably a large contingent of these guys that had traveled from the east and they came rolling into Jerusalem and and they didn't come quietly. They didn't sneak into town. Um, We see here that their arrival sets both Herod and the entire city 
into a state of distress. Uh, literally, that's how the word translates here in the text. So looking at this, and I'm going to take a little bit of license here. Again, the text doesn't tell us specifically. We don't know what alerted these magi to come from far, far away and make the journey to come and to see this child. Um, However, in Daniel chapter 2, also in Daniel chapter 10, the Septuagint translates astrologers as magi. These are probably half scientists, half astrologers, and they were strange kind of aristocratic characters. They were, they were high bred. They were important guys. This is where we get the word magistrate, magi straight. Uh, they were important guys, and so they make this trip because they saw a star in the east, and they came to Jerusalem. Somehow, we don't know how, but somehow that triggered the information they had that was set forth uh, that they now wanted to make this journey to see the king of the Jews. So it made sense to them to travel to Jerusalem. I mean, after all, that's where King David had reigned. They don't know anything about Bethlehem at this point. So they come to Jerusalem, and that's where they would have expected to find him. That's where the king resided. Now, also remember Gabriel, and he's the guy that's going around giving the birth announcements here in, these, in both of these accounts. He's the same angel that had appeared to Daniel 600 years before this. And Daniel was, at that at one point, Daniel, Daniel was in charge of the Magi in Babylon. I don't know. We don't know much about the interaction between Gabriel and Daniel, but there could have been a group of Chaldeans, of Magi, who had knowledge passed on from Daniel. We Again, totally interpretation there, but somehow these guys knew this was an extremely important event And they came. They went to great expense to come to the city to see the king. They understood that one day that Messiah would come, the king of Israel would be born. And when he is, they understood that there would be a sign. That sign was the start. We'll get to that in a second. So in verse 2 they ask, Where is he that was born born king of the Jews? Now notice that they say that he is born king. They don't say, where is he that is born to be king of the Jews? They're plainly asking, where is the king that was born? It's important we understand that, because from his first first breath, Jesus was born king. And because of that, Herod is not happy about it. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. The whole city is is troubled. That word means distressed. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. (laughs) So here, these guys are talking about, again, their scripture. They cite Micah, verse 5, 2, the Jewish leaders do. And they quote that when they say in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Interesting. These guys knew where to find that in God's word. So let's talk about King Herod for a minute. He plays a major part in this account as we go forward. Uh, he was a guy, he was appointed by Caesar. He was king in that day. He was king for between 35, 37 years, something like that. He was a brilliant architect and builder. Uh, ruins today of Herod's temple. It took 46 years, we're told in the Bible, in the New Testament, that that's how long it took for him to, to build this magnificent structure, the temple that was demolished by the Romans in, in the year 70 A.D., He also built a place called Herodian, which is a man-made mountain. Uh, You look at it, and it's like this symmetrical mountain. It just goes up like that. It's flat on the top. There was a a beautiful palace on the top of it at one time. There are ruins and towers up there now. Fantastic place. I mean, and that's where they found, in recent years, they found Herod's tomb. That's where he had himself buried. So he built Herodian. He also... Uh, built Caesarea Maritima. If you remember in our studies in the book of Acts, Herod's palace was built out over the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And this huge pool in the center courtyard of the same. I mean, he, it was a fabulous, fabulous piece of architecture. Still ruins there today. He also built Masada. If you've ever been to Masada or seen, or seen pictures, it was a city that was built on top of a mountain, a flattened top of a mountain. And I mean, if you go there today, the only way you get there is through this aerial tram that takes quite a while to get up to the top of this thing. He built that, built a palace going down one side. I looked over the cliff and looked down at where his palace was. It was just a phenomenal thing. So brilliant, brilliant man. But he was also a perverse man. Uh Secular history tells us that he was a little guy, probably about 5'4", but he had an evil character. He murdered, during his time as king, he murdered between seven and 8,000 Jews uh, there in in Israel. He was also a madman, and he clung so tightly, he clung so tightly to... um, his position to, to he wanted he wanted to maintain rule. Uh, he murdered anyone that he perceived would be a threat to his throne. Murdered three of his own sons. Uh, he thought that they were a threat. Had ten wives. His second wife, a woman by the, the name of Miriamne, uh, it was the one that he loved the most, and yet he had her strangled to death. Evil man, evil intentions. He also claimed to be an Idumean. Now, an Idumean was sort of a, a, a partially Jewish blood. Uh, he, he claimed to be part Jewish, and so therefore uh, he didn't eat pork. I mean, Jews don't do that. They, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't clean. It was unclean. So when Caesar heard about him murdering his family, Caesar, it's recorded that he said of Herod, it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. He wouldn't harm the pig, but he sure did things to his family. So verse 7, Then Herod, who had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. That's how we know that he was looking back. Okay, how long ago did you see this? Uh, and he's, he's doing something. We won't get to the text today, but he orders the execution of all of the male children in that whole region under the age of two because of this dating that he did, doing the math. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I might come and worship him also. Yeah, right. Sure, that's what you want to do. So needless to say, when Herod heard from the Magi that they had come to worship a king, he set a sinister plan in motion, which would would result in genocide against the Jews. Uh, Again, we'll get to that in the text this morning. But it's horrible, the things that he did. Verse 9. So when they heard the king, when they, when they heard Herod, uh, the Magi departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. So they're following the star again. <laughs> and the question that I have, and I think many people have asked over the centuries, is, is there a scientific explanation for the star of Bethlehem. I'm going to read you what one guy says. He says, Researchers have suggested that the star of Bethlehem was a comet, a supernova, or a triple conjunction. (laughs) Now, a triple conjunction is where there are two objects, two heavenly objects that meet up, whether it's a star and a planet or two planets aligning. So what they're saying is this triple conjunction comes about where their combined light causes this bright light in the in the sky. Douglas, would you go back and turn the heater up? It's cooling off in here. I don't know why. Somebody set it down. Don't touch the thermostat. Anyway, um, so they talk about, you know, this. is it a supernova? Is it a triple conjunction? Is, is it a comet? And, and folks, I just, my response to those things is, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It takes more faith to believe that nonsense than it does to understand that this is a supernatural event. The star is moving. (laughs) Stars don't move. I mean, they're way out there, and they stay pretty stationary, and this thing is leading them right to the house. So when I hear things like that, and I read things like that, I think, oh my goodness, you really have trouble with the supernatural. And folks, kind of makes me a little bonkers when people have trouble with the supernatural. 
The word means beyond the natural. Well, I don't understand why people wrestle with it. Everything about this is supernatural. Mary's pregnancy, supernatural. Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angelic visitations, the heavenly host, the star, all of it. you got to understand that the God that we serve operates beyond the natural realm. Actually, he owns it. It's part of his creation. He owns the laws of physics. And he can bend them whenever he wants, and he does. We see that here. I don't understand how God triggered the DNA in Mary to produce a child, but he did it. I don't understand how angelic beings can influence people's dreams, but we see here it's happening and it happens more than once. I don't understand, I certainly don't understand how a star that moves around, that it guides these people directly over the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, but that's what happens. I do believe that all of these things took place. I do believe that these are real events that happen with real people at the hand of a personal, all-powerful God. Verse 10. So when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Yeah, we're here. Have you ever gotten to the end of a long journey? Oh my goodness, am I joyful at that point. So and I think it was more than that, though. They had come to see this child king. And now... All of the effort, all of the expense, all of the time it had taken them to travel from so far away were about to be realized. Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child. Notice it doesn't say baby. Now, (laughs) just take a minute. If you have a nativity scene and you have the baby and the three wise men, don't get rid of it. That's fine. It all gets kind of congealed together. The story gets condensed But it didn't happen that way. (laughs) It absolutely didn't happen that way. This is a couple of years later. There's not a baby in a manger with the three wise guys, the three wise men there. It happened. It was a separate event altogether. So, but like I said, don't, don't get all twisted up about it. I mean, I think it's wonderful. We have one and you probably do too, or you might. That's fine. But I understand that this is a young child now. That's with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. And when they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream, there's that dream thing again, that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So interestingly here, we see that the first people to worship Jesus are Gentiles, not the Jews. We know, I mean, we've read the stories, we've read the accounts in the Gospels, if you haven't, be good reading, that he has trouble with the Jews all along, all the way up until they put him on a cross, along with the Romans, cooperation with them. Gentiles, worshiping Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, too, that they present their gifts to him, a two-year-old. They don't present their gifts to his parents. Now, it's fair to say that his parents would have taken those, and we'll look at that in a second, and they would have stewarded these gifts on behalf of the child. I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but they understand that these are gifts. These are very, very expensive gifts. I mean, these gifts have huge value. In that culture, they were extremely expensive, extremely costly, and they were gifts that were fit, not for a king's parents, but fit for a king. So they present them to this child. Now, some people believe that there's further significance in that in these gifts that reflect on the child's life. I'm going to go down that road for a minute. I don't I don't believe that they had the understanding that we do. But, you know, God very often in his word speaks through nuances. And there are some nuances here in these gifts that I think are fascinating to look at. We'll look at another prophecy here, too. So gold is a symbol of deity and glory. Speaks of the shining perfection of his divine person. As I mentioned, fully God, fully human. Frankincense is an ointment or perfume, and it suggests the fragrance of the life of sinless perfection. Myrrh, on the other hand, is a bitter herb. Uh, It was used to embalm people back in that day. 
It represents the sufferings that he would endure in bearing the sins of the world. Now, there's another prophecy back in Isaiah chapter 60 that I think is fascinating. And Isaiah 60 tells us prophetically that Gentiles will bring gifts to Messiah. However, there they only bring gold and incense, not myrrh. The question becomes why? And the reason is, Isaiah's prophecy is related to the second coming of Christ. And there, uh, he would not suffer death when he comes back in glory. Uh, interesting. So the Magi here, they're warned about uh, not going back to Herod to, to give him the whereabouts of the child. So they avoid Jerusalem altogether. They go home by another route. So verse 13, moving on with the story here. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. By the way, in these two accounts, Mary has one angelic visitation. Joseph gets four. <laughs> so, uh, interesting. So now here he says, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. So Matthew here quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So from his infancy, Jesus would have a death threat hanging over his life. I mean, he's not even two years old, and they're out to kill him. Tell me the God of this world isn't at work behind the scenes through these events. We know that he was essentially born to die. I mean, we know that. I don't know that his parents knew that at that time. But we do understand that. But we also know that every time that they would talk about Jesus being in danger throughout his earthly ministry, he would say, my hour has not yet come. What's that? It, he knew that there was an appointed time, and there was. So nothing could touch him until that time had come. And folks, in our lives, nothing can touch us until that time has come. I marvel that, I mean, having been right to death's door myself and having God pull me back, nothing can take us out until God is ready to take us home. Great comfort in that. So Herod, at this point, he's ready to embark on his search-and-destroy mission uh, with this child. And so the family then become refugees from his madness. Something else I think is really fascinating about this is the Magi's gifts. Now, they were obviously God's provision. If you think about it, their, God's provision came before the need here. But they would have to finance a trip to Egypt. They would have to live somehow in another country until it was clear for them to come back home. And those gifts would become the provision that they needed. Again, worth a lot of, a lot of dough in those days. And God would use that to equip these people to be able to make this trip to get out of Herod's way until he died. I just think it's fascinating. I know... Yeah, we're working on some things here for the church that we have no idea how God's going to do it. We're looking at doing some different things, and, and we'll get into those later on. But uh, I, I told, I think I told Darren not long ago, I said, yeah, I, I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't, I don't know what he's going to do. You know, he owns the cattle on the thousand hills. Maybe he'll sell some. I have no idea. The point is, God provides for this young family before they know they have the need. And when the need comes... They're ready, and they flee. Um, and we don't know how, how long they stayed in Egypt, uh, but with the death of Herod, the way was now clear for this family to return home to Nazareth, where Jesus would grow up and uh, eventually launch his earthly ministry from there until they didn't welcome him any longer. He moved it to Capernaum Excuse me, at that point. So the events associated with the birth of Jesus here we see they fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies uh, which have been given centuries before the events that we see here. Now, in, there's a principle, it's called the principle of first mention, and it's something that you look for when, 
When you're studying God's word, there's, if there's a first mention of something, it usually means it's significant. And that principle is here in the passage that we've covered this morning. In verse 22 of chapter 1 of Matthew, Matthew introduces a common statement in his writing. And he wrote, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Why does he say that? And now he uses this phrasing, this wording, at least 12 times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Launches into it in chapter 1, very early on. We saw it three times, the same phrasing, in the passages that we've looked at this morning. Why? I believe it's because Matthew understood that it was important to point out to, to his readers that many of the events, the, the events that he describes here are a fulfillment of specific prophecies. Folks, we see the prophetic record. If you look and you understand that, I don't know how many, I've heard 300 is the, the amount of prophecies that were fulfilled through the, the life of Jesus. And again, I've not stood or sat down to count them. Scores of prophecies already fulfilled. Many prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Where are we? Right in the middle. This isn't some abstract that we look at from far away. If you understand the prophetic record, you see God tells the future in advance so that when it comes about, guess who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? And, and, and folks, we've seen so much fulfilled prophecy up until this point, right even into this, cent- this last century in 1948 when Israel was reestablished as a nation and different prophecies that I've looked at. I'm not going to take the time to go into them. I'd love to launch right now, but we're running short on time. But the point is, is that as you study God's word, you see what's gone on before. You see what's yet to be fulfilled. You see that your life is tucked into the pages of this book. And we've got to see that our lives are tucked into the pages of this book. It's not out there. It's here. We're part of the story. And if you belong to Christ, you're part of the story. It's exciting. What exciting days to be alive. I mean, I see and we see this world spinning out of control. We see things coming about just as they're predicted here. And I don't know if that's going to have it's the end is tomorrow. I'm not going to sit here and be a false prophet. But I will say that we see signs out there that cause us to look at the prophetic word and say, what's up? Very important that we have that understanding. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So as we wrap up, we see in this passage that there are three distinct responses to Jesus. The first, hatred and hostility. That was Herod. He loathed any mention of this child king. And he set out to destroy him. Folks, you don't need me to tell you that, again, the world is spinning out of control and, and that anti-Semitism is hugely on the rise. So is the church. I don't think it will stop with anti-Semitism. I don't think it would take much for the church to come under heavy persecution because you cannot serve that mandate you cannot serve that and serve god you know the the government will never be the ultimate authority in a believer's life or in a jew's life the lord is the ultimate authority very much like herod get him out of the way he threatens my authority that attitude is still alive and well so there's herod's hatred hostility one of the responses we see here The second is with the chief priests. They show up here, the religious leaders of of Jesus' day. They get consulted. Herod brings them in. Tell me, what does the Bible say about this? And they tell him what the Bible says about it. But you want to know something? They're completely indifferent. So we see people that are religious, but they're indifferent. You know, and if they understood the significance, they understood what the word said, but they did not connect it with the significance of the events that were unfolding in before their eyes, they should have been so excited. They should have been saying, man, can we join you? The Magi, we want to go see that. I mean, if it says that Messiah is coming, we should be the ones. And they tell them that this is Messiah, where he's going to be born. Do they care? No, they're not part of the equation at this point. Why? Because they're indifferent. And folks, 
I, I, and I, I have no one in mind personally. I, I'm, not, I'm not picking on anybody. But I also know that Christmas, Easter are times where a lot of people who are religious or they see some value in God where they will come and, and they'll kind of do their duty by coming to church on those days. And if that's you, we love you and we're super glad you're here. Like I said, not picking on anybody. But if God is showing you that you are religiously indifferent towards the things of, of God, the things of the kingdom, towards the things of Jesus, you can fix that today. Give your life, give your heart to Jesus. The last response we see here is the wise men, the magi. They sought Jesus out. They actively, they went to great trouble, traveled many, many miles so that they could seek him out and worship him. Right answer, right response. Humbly bowing before their king. The Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the will of God. And that's a time where I don't, it's not a time to feel all beat up, but it is a time to be honest and say, Lord, show me my heart. If my heart has been indifferent towards you, if my heart has been aggressively against or whatever it is, or if my heart is simply, I just want to love you and worship you. That's a good thing to do. I ask God to show me my heart regularly on things, showing me some things about uh, my own walk while I was away in California last weekend that were very precious to me. It's a healthy thing to do. So as we look at the incarnation, it's the greatest headline, the <laughs> greatest event of all time. That moment when our Creator stepped out of eternity and stepped into time, where He, the highest being, stepped into His own creation through the lowest door, I love just considering that. Taking the form of a man came to rescue us from ourselves. And that's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the birth of Christ. That's the story of the incarnation.